Hey folks, a little bit different setting tonight. I am not in my uh, at home in my studio. I am uh, gone for the weekend, so I, I forgot to bring my equipment. So I'm actually recording this on my phone. But today's episode is with James Scanlon, and we recorded this uh, a while back, talking about walking from Morocco to the UK, back home to the UK. So James lives in Egypt. Really cool backstory, where he's from, um, how he ended up there, and what he uh, he and his partner, they just enjoy taking walks. Um, that's literally like their hobby. So uh, just around the neighborhood in the evenings. Personally, I've taken a lot of walks lately, like after dinner, if it's still early enough, my family and I will go on a walk. It's awesome. Well, James cranked that up quite a bit, decided to walk from Morocco of all places, just literally to go kind of laterally across the planet to Morocco from Egypt and then walk back home to the UK. And so this is that story. Amazing. I love the simplicity of walking. You know, we've had tons of walkers on the show over the years. Um, and I, I love talking to him because it's just a pace and a way of traveling and a way of adventuring that's so accessible for so many of us. A lot of us can walk. Most of us probably can walk. Um, doesn't take tons of practice or skill. Uh, just takes doing it. That's about it. So enjoy this episode and we will be talking again on Thursday. All right, folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Uh, James Scanlon is with us today. James, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing great, man. It's a it's an early morning here. Not early morning, it's mid-morning here, but uh, it's one of the first things I'm doing today. W- where are you coming from? So I'm currently in Dahab in um in South Sinai in Egypt. Well, well, tell me, you know, you, you say you're in Egypt. What what time is it there? So it's currently about ten past four in Egypt. Oh wow! So so I didn't know if you were going to be coming from Egypt or coming from the UK somewhere. So th- th- this is pretty cool. Yeah. Um. I don't know. Have you ever been out here before? It's quite a nice. No, place. I've never been. Never been to Egypt. For people interested in adventure and sports, which I guess most of your listeners are, this is an ideal spot. It's um. Right near the mountains, uh, you got St. Catharines and Mount Sinai uh, nearby for hiking and stuff like that. And then you got the Gulf of Aqaba, uh, which is a massive sort of gulf between Egypt and Saudi Arabia, which is a big spot for scuba diving and free diving and kite surfing. And it's currently really, really windy, so everyone is out kite surfing, apart from me who's inside. Oh man! So do you kite surf? No, I don't actually, but it's on my list of things to try. Okay, as long as we're not keeping you from a perfect kite surfing day, I don't feel so bad. <laughs> I'm at the moment. I'm, I'm a, I surf, but I'm more of the kind of I enjoy watching them, and I'd rather go for a nice long walk or a swim. But then who, who knows? So we haven't really talked to many people in, in Egypt or in Cairo or in that area. Is it? Are you know all those sports are possible? Are people doing those? Like you said, kite surfing. A lot of people might be out, or, or but are people hiking on the trails and, and biking and all that? Is it is it pretty heavily used? I'd say it's pretty lightly used. I think um, it's not very common. Um, although Egypt Egypt is a massive population and lots of potential. There's lots of things that are going on, but it's quite, I guess, uh, limited to to a certain extent. There are there's a, a Sinai Trail which crosses the whole of um, the Sinai Peninsula which is something you can do with Bedouin guides and camels and camp out in under the stars and with a fire and whatnot. But that's the only, I think that's the only organized or like trail actually in Egypt, like long distance trail, I should say. Otherwise there are a lot of people who have made their own routes. Like um, 
unofficial things. A lot of people have, for example, walked the length of the Nile, um, which is a wonderful thing to do. Uh, cycle the length of the Nile. Um, there's lots of that going on. Um, I personally have walked the length of from Cairo to Alexandria along the uh, the Nile there. And something I'm still doing now, I keep exploring that area because you meet so many interesting people and that's where you meet lots of variety and kind of different things of life going on in Egypt, which is the wonderful thing about it. Most wonderful thing about walking, which is why it's my was my favorite sort of adventure sport as it was. You know, it's beautiful. It's it's one of the most simple things you can do as well. In a lot of ways, you know, you just start walking. What a great pace. You know, I, I was just talking, I'm more of a cyclist. I love to bike tour and I love that pace, you know, 10, 11 miles an hour, yeah. you know, six, 11, so, you know, you know, it, it, it's 15, 16 kilometers an hour or so. And, uh, I just love that pace because it makes a few more things tangible and you don't have to carry it on your back, but, uh, walking is also incredibly popular with through hiking and backpacking. Love that. Um, but how did you end up in Egypt and how, how long have you been there? I'd love to know. I don't think that's where you were born. Uh, yeah, no, so I'm, I'm from the UK, from the southwest of uh, England, a place called Taunton. Um, but I went to university to study Arabic and um, that eventually took me to live in Egypt where I, had, I used to work in a publishing house here and I just fell in love with the language uh, and wanted to spend more time here. Um, and so after a year in Egypt, I then flew to Morocco and then walked back to England, uh, which is the subject of my uh, my book about walking home. Um, but uh, after that, I came back to Egypt because I just missed it so much, missed the language, missed the culture. And now I ended up getting married here and now I live here. And so it's kind of my second home, as it were. Wow, that's fantastic. So, so what what about... What made you want to study Arabic in the first place? What got you interested in that? Because that's, there's got to be a story there. A bit random, I suppose. I mean, I was, um, I was, living, in, I was living in France, uh, working on a farm for about a year there, uh, really unsure what I was doing with my life. I was about 21. And I basically had moved to France to basically try and learn the language and did that by just by working and, and living there. and. I came back to England after a year, and I thought, you know, I'd, I'd like to get a, like to get a job, like to try and do something with languages, and then I decided to go back to university and do a language. I do a language that's a bit different, something that I hadn't heard of before, I hadn't experienced before, and, and that was Arabic. Um, not just because it was the first on the alphabet on the list of things I saw, um, but I guess it was at the same time. And so I, I applied and uh, to university in Exeter and. Um, just enjoyed it, fell in love with the literature and the language and then the dialects of language that you have all over the Arabic-speaking world. And that's what led me to be now a translator, uh, which is basically how I, uh, how I sustain my life of you know, walking and, and trying to write about travel and that sort of thing. Right. So I've kind of, although it doesn't seem like it at the time, I've kind of directed my life towards kind of uh, a way that I, kind of, I can live out all my passions at once, if you see what I mean. That is so interesting. So studying the language, wanting to be in Egypt, what, what was one of the first ways you put that language to use? Was it through teaching English? I think I did teach English, yeah. I taught English um, like very informally. I, like, I'd, I'd come back from work and I'd wanted to try and meet people. And so I'd just 
um, through word of mouth, kind of meet friends of friends at various street cafes in Cairo and teach them local English, teach them very badly, just, you know, just sit down and talk with them. And then they'd pay for my coffee. I, I felt too embarrassed to take money from people because I wasn't a teacher. I, just, I was enjoying just having a conversation with someone in English and then learning Arabic off them. Um, but apart from that, my, my, my exposure to language is just, is just being here and um, walking around. I mean, that's the thing about walking. Um, I haven't got much experience with cycling, but I think it's probably the same. Is it because you are you're so kind of slow and kind of you can be quite vulnerable to one person on your own? It attracts kind of people to come to you, and especially if you're walking with a big backpack on your back, or you're, you're walking and you look like a foreigner, for example. Someone's going to come up to you and say, "Hey, what's this guy doing here?" And um, as long as you've got a smile on your face and you can say hello and they pass a few pleasantries. You can really get stuck into their life and hearing about their day. Like one of the main things I like doing when I'm walking around here, well, now with my wife, we kind of we walk around Egypt and um, explore. Well, for me, it's exploring my second home. For her, it's exploring her own home. We like to ask people the question of, how do you spend your day? It's a really simple like question that kind of breaks down barriers. And when you get like a you know, a man who's, or you know, an older person who's sitting outside and sees us coming, and they, they get this kind of question of how they spend their day. At first, they're a bit confused, and they kind of just start sprouting forth of, you know, their life, what they do, the, the things they do in the day. And there's kind of, they might think they do nothing, but surprising amount of things that someone who does, he seems to do nothing, does in a day. And then that sprouts conversations of what they used to do when they were younger. And then what we do during our day, and that's just that's the the thing that I like about walking is those sort of conversations that come out of it. What do you? Uh, I love that, by the way. And and cycling definitely gets the same thing. You might be going a little too quick if you're you know going downhill, especially you know just yeah. <laughs> physics. You're kind of going fast, but usually there are plenty of interactions through the day because you're a spectacle. And people are, yeah. like, very curious about where you're going, where you're coming from, um, and what you're doing. And so I can imagine by uh, walking, especially on a journey, uh, it's absolutely the same with the backpack. But around your home, that's that's uh, kind of unique. You know, we don't hear about that a lot here in the States, people walking around in order to have conversations. Yeah. Anything you do with these conversations, do you collect them, uh, just want to learn from them, or is it just something you enjoy doing? I think all, all three of those, really. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's just something that's, um, like I have a passion for walking and I love, I love writing. So I, I, I maintain a blog where I, I kind of write my kind of account of these journeys and things we've heard from people. But because, um, like, I'll always be a tourist, essentially, living in Egypt, the fact that my wife is Egyptian, and for her, she's exploring her own country, which, you know, I've done it myself in England. And it's just a wonderful thing where you kind of you see in your own place in a completely different light. And so when I see it through her, I can see the things that she asks people and the conversations they have. You know, Egyptians talking to Egyptians, and it, and I love just being there, like a fly on the wall, and I can kind of you know, you know, jump in occasionally, and you know, I like just being there and listening and 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 uh, noting it down. And at the end of the day, my wife and I, she tends to write her own uh, account of it, and I'll write my own, and they'll be completely different because we have a different point of view of these things. I'm more of the, 
you know, I tend to get kind of like, oh, wow, this is amazing. This person's amazing. Look at this thing. And, and she'll have more of a, a nuanced cultural look at it because she comes from actually living there. And I just love learning about that. Can you do that back in your first home, your other home in the UK? Or is it, is it harder to do or just different? That's a really good question. I think the, um, yeah, we actually, I've, I've done that a few times with my wife. We walked around the UK and it's very different. Obviously, there's like here, I think maybe the climate is the first thing because here when we walk along, um, you have, tend to have the older generations are sitting outside. Like the, the, the track will tend to go past the house. There's always someone sitting outside. And so there's always that kind of, just because you tend to see more people, there's always going to be more chance of a conversation. Whereas the kind of hiking routes that they are in the UK, where they're more sort of formalized and whatnot, you're less likely to meet people just on, on the fly, like people who aren't actually walking. And so, you know, if you meet somebody who's walking, you might share a pleasantry or something. You might, you might not get a deep conversation unless you come across a farmer or, you know, or something like that. But it's not to say that I haven't, you can't experience the same thing, but I think it's just a different, a le- different level of conversation. Because in Egypt, I find it, that is, it's, it's so much more unexpected that they think you're, why are you walking here? And that opens a lot more, that opens the conversation a lot more quicker. Um, whereas I think in, in the UK, it's something a lot more expected to see someone walking. So it's not a strange thing. And so you might just go and kind of um, slow under the radar, if you see what I mean. Can, can you tell a difference uh, in Egypt between, or if you ever walk in rural areas, but between, you know, downtown metropolitan areas in a, a little more outskirts type of places are people different because here in the states when i'm biking especially like if it's a big city i probably won't talk to anybody everyone's just busy yeah. people are moving too quickly but out in rural areas you see you know a hundredth of the people but chances are they're going to talk to you yeah i mean um the geography of Egypt, is, of Egypt is quite peculiar in that uh, a lot of the, the Nile is really where most of the people live, and that's where you're going to be walking most of the time. And so very rarely, in my experience, you're going to be walking, and there's not going to be many people, because you're going to be walking through the Nile Delta, for example. You're walking through farmland and stuff, and there's always going to be someone there. And so the walks that we've done there, we've never been sort of alone for more than like five minutes. There's always, you know, someone walking towards a field to pick up his, his veg or something, or there's someone going home from a shop or going to a mosque or going a fisherman going to and from the Nile. And so there's always like a hustle and bustle. And because the, the, walk, the, the, tra- uh, the tracks you walk on, they look like hiking tracks, but they're just kind of the um, like on tarmacs or roads used by you know farmers and stuff like that. Um, but that's not to say the other yeah, conversations are different in a city like Cairo is a massive city and you kind of obviously people are more busy there and stressed and whatnot. And so you're less likely to get more of a, you know, more of a relaxed sort of philosoph- philosophizing you might get from a, you know, your farmer out in the sticks in the Delta. That's not to say you'll still have a conversation. Um, what we like to do, when we, used to, we used to live in Cairo and I used to, I used to get just um, every now and again obsessed by the fact that I live near the pyramids and I, it was just fun never to forget that never to take that for granted and so we used to just like on a, of a weekend just say let's just walk to the pyramid and so we'll go out and just we won't take any maps with us or anything or our phones just go out and try and get from our house by the Nile to the great pyramid just by asking directions 
And, you know, because it's, it's, it's just fun. I love the idea of just walking in Egypt, in Cairo, and just asking people, excuse me, where's the pyramid? And they'll go this way, just like without even a second, um, taking a second glance. And that's just, that just a fun thing to do. And that gets you a conversation going as well. But um, out here in Sinai, Sinai is a completely different uh, kettle of fish. It's, it is like a desert here. So um, I haven't yet done a big walk in Sinai, but with various things planned, but I think it'll be very different here. I can imagine. What brought you to Sinai? Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. I'd like to introduce you to our newest sponsor, Gnarly Nutrition. I know you've heard about them recently because we've had some guests on recently that credits Gnarly for helping them do the the adventures that we talk about on this show. So uh, Chris Fisher was one who did the Vert Max. He did 400,000 feet of elevation gain in a month. Check out that episode. Uh, that was not too far back. And he credits Gnarly Nutrition for keeping him, his body literally sustained during that time, just packing in the calories. It's amazing nutrition for anyone doing anything adventure, uh, endurance-based, whether that's in the mountains or bikepacking or whatever. It's a great thing to have with you prior to an, uh, an adventure training and also during an adventure. And also Jason Hardrath, who recently did um, the 100 fastest known times. He did 100 mountains in 50 days and just was slamming gnarly nutrition. He also credits Gnarly for essentially keeping his body sustained. And so um, Gnarly Nutrition has been around since 2008. They were born in Utah's Wasatch Mountains, uh, and they are committed to educating and inspiring athletes of all levels to be as nutritionally sound as possible. Their nutrition supplements are certified by NSF and have science-backed products free of hormones, free of GMOs, proprietary blends, uh, and nothing artificial. So Gnarly is going to help you get ready and help you sustain during uh, those huge adventure efforts. So if you're looking for the best tasting and the most trusted sports nutrition brand for any endurance athletes, go to GoGnarly, and that is G-N-A-R-L-Y dot com, and use the code GnarlyAdventure15 for 15% off. And just, you know, a personal plug here, I love Gnarly. I love the folks there. They're doing such a fantastic job. They have been so great to work with. Uh, they helped provide some products for um, our Journey to 100 film series uh, that we were doing giveaways with at the end of every film screening. So it's been a pleasure to work with them so far. So if you'd like to support the folks that are supporting this show, definitely go visit gonarly.com. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Um, what brought me to sign is the, um, the, the pace of life, I think. Um, because here, well, my wife and I, we both work um, freelance. One of those you know, dig digital nomad kind of people. And um, I'm obsessed with the, uh, the sea. I love the sea. Um, and if we can live somewhere that's more relaxed a bit, but, you know, nice pace of life, nice style of life, and a healthy kind of way to live by the sea um, and also work here. Why, why would we stay in Cairo where it's you know, dusty and polluted? Although Cairo is a lovely city, there's lovely things there, but um, it kind of made sense to move here just for a bit of a, bit of a change and a bit of a better, better style of life. Wow, so interesting. So are you enjoying it so far? I don't know how long you've been there, but it ha has it met those goals for you? Uh, yeah, it definitely has. Um, it's a small uh, town. I mean, it's... Um, yeah, what's the town, by the way? I don't mean near. It's called Dahab, which is Arabic for gold. 
because when the sun rises, um, I know when, when it sets over Saudi Arabia, kind of it lights up and it kind of sees all gold. Wow. And it's about an hour north from uh, Sharm el-Sheikh, which people might have heard of on the Red Sea. And there's uh, lots of big diving sites here. The, the, the amazing thing that's inspiring to me is, I think I mentioned the mountains. The opposite of that is just the, 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 the coral reef, and it kind of drops off like almost 100 meters straight away, and you kind of can't see the bottom. So you're going to be floating around in the shallows, and then suddenly just boom, nothing below. And I find that just more inspiring just to be around. Like when I you can go out for a, you know, just a swim in the morning and come back, and you're just inspired to do stuff because you just, the nature that's all around you. Actually, talking about walking, we've done several um, little walks around here, and we've come across um, several groups of uh, Bedouin who've been just you know having a time by the sea. Because native like, uh, people who live here are not Egyptians; they're Bedouin tribes. There's uh, I forget how many tribes in Sinai, but it's, they don't consider themselves Egyptian, although they are. They're sort of more attuned to themselves, and they have their own sort of dialect of Arabic, uh, which is very different to the Cairo dialect of Arabic. So that's another thing we're learning. And um, we were, at one point, we, we, we went on a walk um, and we to a place called the Blue Hole, which is a massive sinkhole, a very famous diving site as well. And on the way back, we came across a group of a women, a Bedouin women, having kind of, they told us that they're weekly ladies outing by the sea. And thankfully, my wife was with us and so she like eased the way in and they and allowed me to sit with them. And they kind of just, one of them had a, this metal uh, flute called a ney that she was uh, playing, um, that she learnt uh, to play when she had her goats when she was a little girl, which they tend to do. And then uh, they, because we have this kind of impression that they're all sort of very conservative women and stuff like that. They cover their face up and whatnot. But they quickly forget that and they kind of just forget to cover their face up and they're very chilled. And they start passing around like cigarettes they've kind of handmade and they're kind of very dubious what's actually in them although they kept insisting they were just normal cigarettes. We didn't partake, but it was quite funny to just to be there and just listen to their stories and hear what they had to say and just, just to be part of that. And that's part of the thing that I love about um, being here is to, you know, get involved with that and hear, you know, spend time with those people and see how, how life's changed for them and what's going on. Such a... I'm looking at your town, Dahab. It's pretty cool. And y- y- it's out there. You're off the beaten path. You, I mean, does it? Do you feel that? I mean, it seems like it might have some some tourists, quite a few tourists, but it's just I've never heard of it. Never heard of anyone from there or, or living there, and it, it seems like a nice little oasis. Yeah, it is. It is like that. I mean, it's um, yeah, you can probably see it right by the sea. There's like palm trees around. There's it's full of goats in the streets. I love the goats. They're, you know, their smiles and their strange horizontal pupils. And uh, it is, there's lots of uh, foreigners living here. But it's a mix of foreigners and, and, and settled Bedouin. Um, foreigners who work in the diving shops and do kite surfing and that sort of stuff. There's a nice mix of, um, nice mix of people, really. Bit of like a, a nice community. It's quite small, but there's lots of stuff going on. And it's also very chill if you kind of just want to have a, you know, a laid-back life away from the city. So let's, let's get into... Uh... Your walk, your, your, the walk you wrote uh, your book about. Tell us about what inspired that. Obviously, you love to walk. We've been talking about that. But this was back in 2018. You were living in Egypt, and you were getting tired of Cairo. 
and you decided to walk home, but not from Cairo. What made you pick up and go to Morocco and then start walking back to England? I planned to walk from Cairo to uh, England, but the, the borders and political situ- situations weren't really helping that. And so I kind of came up with a um, more kind of random way of doing it, which is I looked at a map and looked west to see what town I'd hit on the same latitude as Cairo. And it was Agadir in Morocco. And I love the, the Morocco is just kind of pretty much straight below England. And I like the idea in my head that kind of I was still walking back from Cairo, just the same latitude, but just not the same geographical distance. That kind of made a lot of sense in my head. And so I thought, you know, I'll, I'll leave the, the Cairo uh, to Morocco, uh, walk for another day, and I'll just go to, go to Morocco and walk back from there. So that was that. And I still plan on hopefully one day doing that. But that's how it all started. So it was the uh, the latitude because of the change that it would introduce. You know, walking north up the latitude would 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 give you some variety versus walking along or uh, along the, so the, uh, yeah. the latitude thing was basically because um, it'd be on the same. So in my, I'd be walking from the same latitude as Cairo back to England, kind of following north the curve of the earth. Yeah. But otherwise, and I'll I'll see kind of you know how it changes while I was walking north. Obviously, walking from Cairo, if I'd walk either through, I could have walked across Africa to Morocco. Wow. That would be a completely different um, trip, and that's something that I would still love to do. But it just wasn't, it wasn't feasible at that time. Um, or walking the other way. Would, would, you go through, uh, would you go through the Middle East, not the Middle East, but like uh, Lebanon, Turkey, and then through Eastern uh, Europe? Or would you go across Africa and then north, if you did it that way? Yeah, I mean, it's hard because both would be amazing journeys, I think. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to choose, I think. <laughs> I'm pretty flip a coin, but I think... Um, well, go 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 one way to back to to England, then come back the other way, you know, just make it a round trip. That, yeah, that solves it, yeah. <laughs> I think I'll... The, the, the going across Africa would be amazing because of... Because of my background in Arabic language, that would be amazing just to see all the different dialects because... You go from Egypt to Morocco, and then the two dialects of Arabic are almost unintelligible. And so to see that sort of change going across, that would be quite fun. Um, but then again, walking north through Europe, through like kind of that sort of area would be wonderful as well. I, mean, you know, I think I'll do as you say. I'll, I'll go one way, then back the other way. That's the only way to do it. There you go. That's the only way to do it. <laughs> That's awesome. So... Well, take us through that walk uh, from Morocco, uh, which you, you then went through Spain, through France, and how long did that take? How many kilometers? And, and and tell us about starting the journey that had to feel maybe a little more frightening than some of your daily walks. I'm not sure. Maybe you were weren't scared at all. So in total, uh, I spent about six months uh, to walk from Agadir, Morocco to Taunton in England, and that's a roundabout route of about just over 4,000 kilometers. It wasn't, direct, it, wouldn't, it wasn't straight. I think if I'd done it straight and gone straight through Spain, it would have been about 3,000. But I, I got caught up in all those Caminos to Santiago and, you know, so did a few dog legs and got my way home that way. But um, starting it, yeah, I was very apprehensive because I was really unsure of, it sounds silly now, I think, but oh, personally it does. Like, but I, I was worried that I wouldn't be able to actually walk in Morocco for some reason. Um, I tried to do, I'd done research on this. I'd asked people on 
you know, various groups on Facebook, which seems to be what I thought would be the best way to research this. Um, and but I, my experience of walking in in Egypt had been um, you have to have you know various uh, permits signed off, and then there's checkpoints all over the place. And you, and if you're walking uh, and you look a bit dodgy with a backpack on, the police might just arbitrarily stop you and say you know you can't come here um, for whatever reason. And so I just um, naively kind of put Egypt and Morocco together. Whereas Morocco, when I got there, it was just they, <laughs> the wonderful thing was just no one cared. And that was just the best <laughs> the best thing for a, a hiker who feels, you know, with your big backpack on, your first day, you're sweating because you're not used to it, it, it all. It's all hot and it's all uncomfortable. Um, you're carrying all these water bottles because you can't fit them in your backpack and you just feel very unadventurous and very, very stupid. Um the best thing to happen was just that no one paid attention to me. I was just just someone else walking on the side of the road, and that was that's how I started the walk. And that was probably the best thing. I mean, it's better than having people shout at you or you know stop you. I just walked into anonymity. That was wonderful for the first few days. What were some of the challenges that you were facing compared to your daily walks? Obviously, you had to pack enough to 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 camp or to, to be out there for extended periods of time. Did you, did you have a lot of experience doing that? So I had, um, had quite a bit of experience of, uh, long distance hiking and camping. Um, I've done quite a bit of hiking already in England and in France. And also I spent a year after school living in Australia in a, a really amazing school called Timbertop in, which is North of Melbourne, which is an outdoor education school, which I did a lot of hiking there. And so I was pretty adept at hiking and packing a bag, how to pack a bag efficiently, which was which stood me in good stead, uh, to be honest. But in terms of this, this was um, I had packed with me a, a tent and a stove and all those you know um, things you need to be a proper adventurer out in the wilderness. But my goal was essentially to try and spend my time with people and talk to people and you know spend you know really understand and get to know the country through the people and their stories. And so I thought I'd have my tent as a backup, but I'll just kind of try and ingratiate myself to people and use couch surfing as a way of the application couch surfing as a way of kind of a combination that's quite cheap and also exchanging culture and that sort of thing. And also occasionally meet people who invite me to stay in the house. So the main weight in my backpack was was water really, um, carrying lots of water. And various other things that I kind of realized I didn't need. And I, I, I used my tent once or twice in Morocco. But that was a weight that I, I just carried with me because I, I knew I'd use it in Spain and France, which I did. But there's more sort of, um, there was more sort of space and more sort of sparsely populated areas where I'd camp sometimes. But in Morocco, I was, you're kind of going through uh, towns and villages all the time. And so it was, I'd rather not kind of camp, I'd rather kind of just go and rock up at a place, sit at a cafe, try and be a you know, friendly little friendly little foreigner come to talk to someone and then try and you know see what would happen. And sometimes I'd just sleep in the cafe if if I didn't manage to make any friends. Um and that was perfectly fine. That was wonderful. So the great thing about definitely Egypt and Morocco, my experience is the cafes just never tend to close. There's always someone there. And <laughs> and if you if you're and nice, they would let you sleep. If you if you're yeah if you get on well with a waiter and whatnot. Uh, they tended to say, "Yeah, don't worry, just sleep here." I mean, obviously, it can be. It could be a bit dodgy, obviously, if you're if you're in a kind of a built-up area. But in these villages, 
places like fishing villages along the coast. They didn't tend to be mentioned much. I didn't feel dangerous. I kind of tend to put my bag on my front in a like a dead man's hold and just doze off. And, I, and I, <laughs> several times I'll do that and then I'll get rocked awake by someone and saying, excuse me, do you want to come and have some dinner with me? Because you look like you're a bit lost. And so that would, that would be nice. So interesting. Wow. So, so what did you, from uh, uh, the point of view of, of people, maybe language, what, what did you start to notice some of the changes right away? Were, were, were the changes really tied around country borders or was it more, obviously, probably more nuanced than that? Um, tell us about the changes you were seeing as you made your way north. The, the, the linguistic changes, though, it's a, there's a, the Morocco is full of... Uh, it's got the, its main Arabic dialect, Derja, which is different from the Egyptian dialect and a very peculiar dialect in itself. It's a mixture of Arabic and um, Amazigh or Berber languages, uh, which was something I had to get used to. And then it, there's also different regions. I'm not an expert on Morocco, but there's different regions of these Amazigh um, languages um, from the south up until the north. And... And I didn't wasn't able to get to grips with those languages because they're completely different from Arabic. I was getting I was mainly communicating in Arabic and and French. But those I did notice those differences as we go north. Some like pronunciation differences, as you have in every, any country, like you know between cities and towns and between um, the the cultural area, these or the countryside areas, and then the towns and north and south. There's always slightly different variations of how you pronounce things or what you say. And I'd pick those sort of things up as I would go. Um, but and other things like the country, um, the landscape. I mean, the, the landscape in the south of Morocco is kind of what you expect when you look at the, you know, if you Google it, it's just it's beaches and dunes and wonderful deep blue sea. Uh, and then as, as you get further north, that becomes more sort of green fields and and I certainly wasn't expecting that as I got further north. I think one thing on the kind of really bizarre change that kind of stuck out to me, and I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm the only one to have this theory, but kind of I, I made it, I kind of pinned it down as my little theory that I put in my book, is that this, my main thing every day that I'd have would be this, um, this uh, type of coffee called a nosnos, which is Arabic for half-half. Um, and it's a peculiar Moroccan coffee where it's half espresso, half foamy milk. And in the south, um, they pour the the milk in the in the cup, and then they pour the um, espresso straight onto the top of that, and so it kind of floats around this kind of fun sort of jellyfish kind of um, shape, which is wonderful to watch. And then at some point in the middle of Morocco, I noticed it at a service station, uh, bizarrely, after I just spent a night in the dunes in this sort of uh, military zone where I'd been very scared, and I ended up camping in the middle of these bushes. And I came floating out in the in the in the morning to the service station for my morning coffee, and from then onwards, the coffee was always served opposite. It was espresso first, and then milk afterwards, and that kind of obliterated all the kind of poetic jellyfish swirling of the, in the coffee in this just brown liquid, and it was that all the way up until Tangier, and so that's my kind of my. My take on, on the changes in Morocco is it, the, the coffee is like in the south is one thing, very poetic. The coffee in the north is the brown liquid. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, it, did it ha- and it only had to do with the way they poured it in. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 it's probably just a very peculiar, I'm, I've got a very peculiar 
um, <laughs> take on it. I mean, I'm not saying that was the whole thing of Morocco, but that's my that was my take on it. It was a very arbitrary point in the middle of Morocco where the coffee changes. Coffee changes. Well, uh, t- tell me this: Was there uh, how were the people treating you, and, and were people interested to know what you were doing? Uh, yeah, they were. I mean, um, they I had my sort of little gambit. I'd I'd say to people, I'd I'd introduce myself as um, Ibn Battuta. And Ibn Battuta was a, a Moroccan traveler from Tangier, of all places, who in the 14th century traveled 29 years around the world as far as China. Um, he traveled you know, further and longer than Marco Polo, for example. I think just after Marco Polo died. Um, and he came back and wrote a book about it, or he ascribed wrote his book for him and then published it. And there's this big thing, it's called Al Rihla, it's called the, the Trip, the Journey, or whatever. And it's this account of his travels. And it's still very, and it's very well known in the Arabic world today, this kind of like canon of, of travel literature. And the fact that he's Moroccan, which is wonderful, because I could walk along and say to people, they'll say, hello, what, what are you doing? This kind of, this traveler person with a big backpack. And I introduced myself as Ibn Ibn Batuta, which kind of uh, sort of sort of means I'm the son of Ibn Batuta. And that would kind of, you know, uh, invoke reels of laughter and we'll get on like a house on fire and then we'll kind of just discuss what, you know, what I'm doing. And even the, you know, the, the simple sort of... Um, person in the countryside who kind of who was on the, you know farming the field or something would have heard of Ibn Battuta uh, in my experience anyway and that was just wonderful because it kind of it broke the ice straight away and we were in they kind of they had like a a something to kind of reach at to they could understand okay this is the idea of you know someone's traveling in search of something knowledge or just traveling for travel's sake because that's what this Ibn Battuta guy was doing he was traveling um ostensibly to go to Mecca to the pilgrimage but then he just he got carried away and kept on going to China in search of knowledge and, and spirituality. And, and, and in, his, in, in his case, lots of wives and children. That wasn't my case. But that, that's lovely to have that sort of cultural um, uh, point that you can reflect to and kind of a reference to, a reference point that you, kind of, you both understand. And that was my experience throughout the whole of Morocco, actually. And that was wonderful. That kind of really helped, um, you know, explain what I was doing to people. Um, and you know, throughout all Morocco, I got a really nice um, response from everyone I met, to be honest. Take us through, as you made it through Morocco and into Spain, what what was that? What did that look like? You got to Tan- Tangier. Yeah. And what did that feel like? And how, how did you, uh, how did that differ as you got ready to jump the uh, Strait of Gibraltar to, to Spain? At that point, I was very unsure of what to do. I think I'd, part of me wanted to stay in Tangier. I mean, it's a, I don't know if you've ever been, but it's a wonderful place where you can just see Spain across the road. And it's also very, it's got a very nice downtown area. Very, and it's got a history of like, literary figures who've lived there and passed through. The beat poets have been there and lots of writers have been there and the travellers and whatnot. And so you can get caught away thinking, oh, so I'll, I'll, just, I'll stay here and just, sip espressos on the balconies until I run out of money. And I kind of, I toyed of doing that. I told him that I could just stay here and, and, and never leave. But then I had a, um, it, was, it was getting to mid-November. Um, and so I think I, I really needed to get into Spain before it got too cold. 
because I still had to cross uh, Spain and the Pyrenees into France um, in the middle of winter. And so I wanted to try and, you know, get a good, get up a good momentum. And so I, I, I was very sad to leave Morocco. I had such a good experience there. And I thought I just wanted to, I thought, you know, I've got to get going. So I off went, off went to Spain. And Spain was a completely different kettle of fish to Morocco. November. You said you were you were getting into Spain in November. I mean, yeah, the Pyrenees are very very can be very cold. How, how did you? I assumed it would take some time to get from the southern portion of Spain to the mountains themselves, which would put you right in the dead of winter. Uh, yeah, how'd that go? <laughs> well, uh, it took me it took me how long? About three months, I think, um, because I. Well, Spain was a lot bigger than I had envisioned, I think. I think in my mind, when I first thought about this, I thought Morocco would be the most difficult thing because there's no um, organized walking routes. I was making it up as I went along. I was walking along the beach or along the cliff tops, along shepherd's tracks, along hard shoulders, uh, keeping the Atlantic on my left and just heading north until I hit Tangier. You get to Spain and Europe and it's all sort of, you know, uh, tracks and hiking paths and it's a lot more structured um but then spain is just it's just so big um and then you've got the caminos to santiago the pilgrimage routes to santiago de compostela and i kind of was i hadn't really i, I i'd heard about these in, my, in the north of morocco and i kind of was in the back of my mind thinking okay there's something i can use to get through spain i think originally before i thought of just going to tarif and just bombing it through centre, through Madrid, up to France. And that's, that's the Google map route. But then that's not much fun. And so I ended up doing the, the, uh, the pilgrimage routes to Santiago, which, is in the, which takes you to the right uh, top left or the northwest of um, Galicia in Spain. And that's a massive dog leg. Um, but that, was, uh, that added on about, doing that added on about a month and a half to the route. But... It was definitely the best thing I could have done because I think walking through Spain was wonderful just because walking is so easy. I mean, I think um, Morocco was definitely an adventure in, in the sense that I was making up as I went along. I had no um, deadline. I could just I, I had no sort of stress of when I had to finish or I had to stay somewhere, and I was just living every day. Spain was very much it's like a walking highway. You kind of you just join these caminos and you just you go for miles and miles and months and months without stopping because uh, the, the, the tracks are all there for you. You can get lost, obviously, but then that, that's that's part of the part of the fun, I think. Um, and then, so I eventually got to the north of Spain in something like middle of middle of January, middle to late of January, um, and ended up um, not going over the Pyrenees at all, but skirting around them on the coast. So I kind of I got that one out of the way around. So I got into into France right in the southwest in um, in Bayonne, and then just from France it was just the simple case of walking up the coast like I had in Morocco, um, and then over to England. But yeah, there each three each of the three countries, um, France, Spain, and Morocco, were very different in 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 terms of how to walk there and what what it kind of what kind of experience walking. What at this point was one of the most interesting or bizarre or yeah, just fascinating encounters you had, whether it be with an animal or people? I mean, 
you meet some great characters when you're walking on the the, the roads in Spain. I mean, you meet. I met a knight Templar who lives on a who still has his kind of his scabbard, his his, his Excalibur sword, and lives as a as a knight on this mountain in Spain. Um, I I think the probably the, the most um, memorable encounter, um, if not just in Morocco, but probably maybe the whole trip was this um, encounter of a man called Mohammed by a river. And about in the second week of my trip there, um, and I got to this river uh, where I couldn't cross because it was it was flowing too fast. And I thought I need to get across to get to the town, um, the next town. So I wanted to end the day there and catch up and maybe write a blog and catch up on what with Wi-Fi and stuff. And I was you know, distracted by you know, these modern things, connectivity and whatnot, which is the, not the point of why I was doing this walk in the first place. But we get distracted. And then here comes the lesson. The man, as I was stripping off to cross in my boxes, everything in my bag, I hear a shout from behind me. A man steps out telling me to stop and look round. And he was this kind of small man in a, in a big baggy green jumper, um, weather beaten. And he just simply said to me, stop. And then came down to me um, as I was getting dressed hands on his hips and said, and shook his head and said, no, it's too, too high, too fast. You'll die if you cross there. Come and have some tea with me. So I just you know, said yes and went, had some tea on the dunes by his little shack. Um, he's a fisherman from a little village nearby. And he had his, his brother there and a, um, a cousin, I think. And we sat by the fire in silence, just having tea. I slept for a few hours. I woke up again. We went down together to look at the, the river. It was still f- uh, flowing. And it was still impassable. He said to me again, have some tea, it will go down again. He was just a very calming presence and just sat there philosophizing about the world in, in French to me and just sounded so wonderful. And it ends up hearing his story. And he was this man who, although ostensibly now he was a, um, a fisherman who kind of bit low on his luck, um, lived with his brother. Um, he was just smiley this bright twinkle in his eyes and he'd come from Casablanca in the north which then was about I think over 150 maybe 200 kilometers away to the north and he told me the story of he, he'd come from Casablanca to where we were then um, he was 15 and he said he just he'd walked there walked along the coast the opposite way that I was walking then and he said that he'd walk every day um, about 15 kilometers and just sit down and watch people I said, why did, why did you do this? And he said, I was walking, trying to find someone to marry, trying to find a wife. And I said, did you find anyone? He said, no. And he started laughing. And we're just, just happy with his lot. It is this simplicity, this kind of romantic man who was you know, impassioned with language. And he's speaking French, which is obviously his second language then, um, philosophizing about it. And he was, he was so happy to have met me doing something which he had once done himself. The other way, and he was, you know, he, he took me in, and I stayed the night at his house, and we, we had dinner, we had tea, very sim, very sort of simple thing, and watched some Egyptian films, and just just chatted, and had a nice night, and then he, he also mended my broken uh, shoes, and he knitted up my trousers, and washed my clothes without me knowing. I woke up in the morning and that, and I saw he'd done all this for me. Um. It was just that, which was just so wonderful. We kind of 
really brought me down to earth and really brought me down to realizing what I was doing this for and what it all, you know, what kind of the purpose of it all was. And he, he really kind of kept telling me, you know, James, when you walk, um, do it just to reflect on your life and just smile. And that was just, you know, it was this simple thing. And it stuck with me um, for the rest of that six months. And it's still with me now. I mean, he's the person I put on the front cover of the book. Um, and he's also someone I've got a, a printout of him, printout photo of him um, staring up at me from the wall <laughs> when I work, just as a reminder, you know, to keep your, keep your feet on the ground and, and, you know, and also to keep getting out there and keep walking and keep dreaming. Wow. That is too cool. It, it, it's it's those encounters that really stick with you. I love that. So, so I know we're getting a little short on time. T- tell us about you make your way up to Spain and France, and then into England. What was that like? How, how did how did that feel getting back quote to your first home? I think it was a mix of feelings. Really, it was it was wonderful to finally finish because I think by that point I'd. When you finish a walk, I think it's probably the same with a long distance cycle, and especially when the end point is your home. You kind of you're very a few weeks to go. You're kind of already in the kind of ending kind of frame of mind. This is coming to an end soon. What do I do next? You start to get worried about okay, do I have to you know do I get a job somewhere? What do I do? So I was trying to put that out of my mind. But when I did get to the end, I think I was I was, I was relieved and happy, and but then also after a few weeks of sort of the zen like state you get after doing a big adventure and you get the kind of the, the downs that everyone experiences after a big a big gallivant when you've just been you know roaming but idle for for, for, a, for a long time of kind of existentialism of what do i do next and what do i do with this days of looking at the map thinking i'll never get to england and then you get there and then suddenly that whole section of your map looks very small whereas for, for the past six months it looked scarily big that's the strange thing to get used to. Um, I think I, and I spent the rest of the next year or so just almost denying I'd done it and not wanting, not wanting to talk about it, not wanting to anyone to mention it, um, just kind of shutting it out of my mind for some reason and then getting it back into, and then eventually I kind of realised, oh, that's actually realised how much it was a formative experience for me and then, and then going down to write a book about it, that really helped me sort of reflect on it and reflect on how much I enjoyed it and how much I got out of it. Um, but it took a long time to you know, process that. Well, well, tell us about the book. What, what can people expect reading it? Because one of the reviews I saw was, uh, you know, definitely not your typical, you know, long-distance walking book. What do, you, what do you think they meant about that? Well, I think I, uh, I, I, I tried to write it entertaining, and I tried to write it, in an entertaining way and also in a way that's sort of not over the top, not pretending to be something that it isn't. It's very much, it's an, it's account, of, it's an account of a walk. It's not, it's not a, a philosophical treatise, if you see what I mean. I mean. And so I kind of, I tried to keep it light and also a bit humorous and also put in a bit of things that I picked up along the way based on my own expertise about what, things I do about language and, and whatnot. But I try not to go towards hyperbole or go, you know, be so amazed by by these wonderful foreign cultures, whether at the end of the day we're all very much like very very much the same. Um, I just try to keep it down to earth like that, um, and also a bit tongue in cheek to some extent, and just not you know go over the top. You know, I, 
all I, I, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm someone who had the luxury to, to fly to the south of Morocco and spend six months walking home. I mean, it's wonderful, but I had, there's lots of people who can't do that. And so I'm not going to shout about how hard it was or how dreadful it was or glory in those things. I'm, kind of, I'm going to vamp up the, the fun bits, the wonderful times, the interesting things. I think that's perhaps that's what they were talking about. But that's what I was aiming for anyway. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, so wh- where would you like folks to find the book? Uh, I, I know it's on Amazon, but is there anywhere else you'd like to point people? Amazon is the only place it's available at the moment. I know that uh, would anger some people. Uh, um, but unfortunately, uh, that's the only place it's available at the moment. No problem. Um, we'll point people there. Is there any parting story or reflection or lesson you learned that you want to share with folks uh, before before we close out the conversation? Um Ooh. I think I'll just say, if you're going for a walk in Morocco, take a stick with you. You might not think you'll need a stick, but use a stick because of the, because of the dogs. <laughs> the dogs. <laughs> Help you walk at all, walking stick, but it, it not really, just mostly for the dogs. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, it does help you walk. No, it it, it uh, eases the pressure on the, on, the, on the joints and whatnot, but it's, uh, it's a wonderful thing to fend off wild dogs because you'll... you'll Hundred percent come up against wild dogs. Oh man! Um, <laughs> even in Spain as well. I mean, um, but yeah, have a stick with you because you look like a with a stick. You look like a proper adventurer, and of course, that's what it's all about at the end of the day, isn't it? Looking like a proper. Hey, that's adventurer. right. It's all for the all for the gram for the Instagram. Now that's awesome. Well, James, thank you so much for joining us and telling uh, a, a little bit about this story. It's so interesting, and uh, yeah, have a have a beautiful day and rest of your day in in, in paradise. <laughs> Thanks, Mason. Very nice to talk to you, and I hope you have a nice start to the day. Thank you. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash Podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.